Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 18 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And Dan and I are joined by Wen Fa of the Pacific Legal Foundation to discuss Cedar Point versus Hasid that was argued this week before the Supreme Court of the United States by one of his colleagues, Josh Thompson. Uh, Mr. Fa has litigated cases in all of uh, PLF's practice areas and focuses on equality before the law and free speech. He also, as we'll hear, uh, argued this matter before uh, the Ninth Circuit. Um, and with that, we'll jump right into it. Uh, Mr. Fa, why don't you give it a, a, a quick and dirty outline of the facts that led to this lawsuit, uh, the, the two parties that you're uh, that you all represent, and kind of uh, how we got uh, what what were the facts that led to this suit being filed? Sure. So uh, we represent two agricultural businesses, Cedar Point Nursery and Fowler Packing Company. Cedar Point Nursery is a strawberry plant grower near the California-Oregon border, uh, and Fowler Packing Company grows table grapes and citrus fruits uh, in Fresno, California. So in this case, the agricultural businesses are challenging a California access regulation that allows union organizers onto private property for three hours per day, 120 days per year. We filed this lawsuit in February 2016, shortly after the union organizers attempted to uh, go on to the private property of Fowler Packing Company, and shortly after they actually went on uh, to the um, property of Cedar Point Nursery during a busy harvest season. They came on at 5 a.m. with bullhorns, uh, ended up scaring many of the workers, uh, and we filed a lawsuit shortly thereafter. Um, the district court actually dismissed our case uh, we alleged that there was a taking of private property without just compensation in violation of the Fifth Amendment. The district court dismissed our case because they found that uh, it should be uh, that this access regulation should be evaluated under the multi-factor balancing test uh, uh, applicable to regulatory takings and not to uh, the per se categorical test that we advocate for uh, that's applicable to physical takings. Uh, the Ninth Circuit, in a divided two-to-one decision, affirmed the uh, district court. It found it held that because uh, this regulation did not allow for around-the-clock access, then it should be analyzed under the multi-factor balancing test. And we petitioned for uh, rehearing by the full Ninth Circuit, but that was denied over the dissent of uh, eight judges on the Ninth Circuit. We then petitioned for the Supreme Court to take this case in July, and in November 2020, the Supreme Court agreed to take the case. Uh, as you mentioned, this Monday, uh, March 22nd, my colleague Joshua Thompson argued this case before the Supreme Court presented the arguments, and uh, now we will await the results, which we anticipate will be handed down by the Supreme Court in June of 2021. Th th thanks for being here, Wen. And one of the things you, you mentioned, the district court and then the Ninth Circuit, 
And in front of the Ninth Circuit, there was some discussion about a preliminary injunction and facts that may have been in the record, but not in the complaint. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was about? Sure. So the appeal is from the motion to dismiss, but you are definitely correct that we filed a preliminary injunction seeking the court to stop uh, the ability of California to enforce this access regulation and stop union organizers from you know, uh, conducting the same sort of disruptive invasions that happened on the property of our client, Cedar Point Nursery. Uh, so some of the facts in the preliminary injunction motion was that, you know, one of the one of the rationales for a law like this is that the employees, the agricultural employees, are believed to be inaccessible to union organizers outside of the property. Uh, as we allege in the um, in the uh, declarations in support of the preliminary injunction motions, that's simply not true. Uh, our uh, employees, the growers' employees, are housed. Uh, at off off the site of the uh, businesses who are the plaintiffs here at Fowler Packing Company, they're actually not migrant workers at all. They're full time workers, and they live in their own houses um, outside of the property. And in Cedar Point Nursery, uh, they are housed in hotels. All of them are housed in hotels um, outside uh, of the growers' property, actually at nearby Klamath Falls, Oregon. Interesting. Uh, Further, I, I do also want to note that besides the fact that they live off, uh, you know, the property, they also have uh, cell phones and many of them. Shocking. Have they have, there's, there's electronic communication right. available. We're right. going to talk about a case later on, ladies and gentlemen, where we'll explain where this access to the workers comes into play. So the, the, keep these facts in mind as Mr. Foz explaining them. Right. Many of them have smartphones. Uh, they talk about social media outlets like Twitter. No way. Snapchat. I've heard about these. Uh, it seems you know it seems like some of the employees are are even more uh, technologically inclined. I'm sad to say than I am uh, because I don't use all of those apps on a regular basis. Um, and in addition to that, they also have access to uh, radio stations, which uh, a union affiliate frequently advertises membership uh, in the union uh, through those channels. So the the inaccessibility of the employees is simply not an issue in this case. Also, also at the Supreme Court, they talked about that most of the, a lot of the workers or most of them spoke English and that was another side issue as well, right? Absolutely. Our, our employees, all of them speak English or Spanish. Um, you know, that's another rationale that uh, led to this regulation. Um, you know, it was believed that a lot of the employees uh, in 1975 did not speak, uh, uh, you know, English or Spanish. And as we as we've submitted in the declarations, that's not the case with the employees here. There, there's we our our podcast. When, in case you you don't you don't know, is we focus on oral arguments uh, mm -hmm. in Illinois, Indiana, the Seventh Circuit, and the Supreme Court. Sure. And so we kind of look at the procedure um, uh, fairly often. In the Ninth Circuit argument, uh, there were very few questions. Uh, you, you it is it was a it was a cold bench. Uh, let's just say that isn't the case in the Seventh Circuit. Is is that typical in the Ninth Circuit, or was that just a peculiarity of that panel or that case? It's it's uh, it was very surprising to me. Uh, it's not usually the case in the Ninth Circuit. Um, you know, I remember in the in the many moots I've done um, for that case, we had a hot bench 
every single time just because this was such a what's the point of having a moot, a moot court if you're not if it's not hot i mean you get that's the whole point right yeah i mean this is such an important issue and an issue that we thought the just judges would all be very interested in that we anticipated plenty many questions uh in the argument but as you saw that was just not the case they didn't really ask many questions of either side no, it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't that they, they let one of the, oftentimes what happens is where they've kind of made up their mind, they want to beat up on somebody. Right. I listened to an argument the other day where that's exactly the case. And it, you can kind of tell where the, where things might, where the winds might be blown. But this case, they didn't ask you any questions. They didn't ask your opponent very many right. questions, uh, maybe right. just a couple right. uh, on, on really not, not probing really at all. And that was very surprising on an issue like this. Yeah. And w w one of the things that uh, before the Ninth Circuit, listening to that oral argument, uh, Mr. Fa, the issue seemed to focus on a distinction between the Penn Central multi-factor ad hoc test versus the Loretto and Nolan bright line test. Can you explain those as those will help us better understand uh, for the audience when we get to the second uh, in the SCOTUS argument that took place? Yeah, sure. So the multi-factor balancing test of Penn Central is a test that applies to regulations usually with an incidental effect um, on uh, property value. So you can imagine some sort of zoning law that might be subject to the to the Penn Central multi-factor balancing test. And that test, you know, it recognizes that there are regulations enacted that affect property value, um, at least indirectly, all the time. So as you can imagine, it's very unfavorable to property owners. Uh, a property owner can lose millions of dollars of value uh, on his property uh, caused by a government regulation and not receive a penny in compensation under the multi-factor balancing test. Well, just so we get the facts so people can understand, Penn Central dealt with a historical preservation in, in of, as the name was said, Penn Central, ladies and gentlemen, in New York. So that's what that's what he talks about, a regulatory taking. That's what he's talking about is it regulated their ability to change this this building. Okay, because I, I, it helps people get the idea. We've studied these cases. Some people may not either. They may have they may have studied, but they may not remember them. So I'll make sure we keep the facts in mind of how this is different, how I think this might be different than letting people on your land as opposed to, yeah, you got to keep that pretty thing over there. Definitely. And with respect to the physical um, takings doctrine, that applies to cases in which the government allows for a permanent physical occupation of the property. Or uh, as is, you know, as we think is the case here, when the government takes a discrete property interest or takes something that functions as if it were a discrete property interest. So the two big um, physical takings cases that I want to know in, I guess, the last uh, 40, 40 or 50 years are cases like Loretto, uh, in which uh, there was a cable box placed in uh, the uh, apartment buildings. And, you know, the court said the cable box didn't really take up a lot of space. Uh, the damages ended up being only a dollar, but because it was a permanent physical invasion, permanent physical occupation of property, uh, the the de minimis invasion of the cable box went to the amount of compensation that was due and not to whether the um, taking has occurred in the first place. Nolan, I think, is a case even more like this in which the government- Nolan seems right on, almost right on point. Correct. The government, as a condition of you know allowing a property owner to build on his own property, uh, demanded that the property owner give up a third of his property for an easement uh, to allow the public to access the beach. And what the court said that you know if the government had done that outright, 
um, and had taken an easement across the property of the property owner, that would be a per se taking. Uh, and, you know, we, we think something like that happens in this case. The government allows union organizers, grants an easement for the benefit of union organizers to come onto the property of every agricultural grower in California. And sure, it's time limited, but any limits on time uh, during which the union can take access, I, we believe, go toward the amount of compensation that is just and not toward whether a taking has occurred in the first place. And it's a third of a year. Yeah. And with that, we'll take our first break. Welcome back to segment two of episode 18. We're here today with Wen Fa of the Pacific Legal Foundation discussing Cedar Point versus Hasid. And, and we've talked about the Ninth Circuit. You mentioned that uh, there was a, a dissent. You know, we'd like to know a little bit about what the dissent was in the Ninth Circuit. And then the motion in Bank was denied. And you mentioned there was a dissent there as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the dissents in each of those uh, decisions and, and what, what the dissent, uh, you know, what, what they... Uh, objected to in the majority? Sure. So in the Ninth Circuit, uh, Judge Levy dissented in the Ninth Circuit panel decision. Um, I think his dissent was styled more um, more like the questions that Justice Kavanaugh was asking at oral argument. He relied, uh, I think, pretty heavily, if I remember correctly, on the Babcock decision, which said that, you know, under the NRA, you had to balance the right of employees to learn um, to learn their right to organize to, to uh, union organization with the private property uh, rights of the property owner. So the rule that the court announced in Babcock was that uh, union access would not be permitted unless the employees were uh, inaccessible by other means. And because the employees, as I mentioned earlier on your show, they are accessible by other means. They live off property, they have smartphones, and they listen to radio stations um, uh, that are hosted by union affiliates, um, then under the Babcock test, uh, we would win, which is what Justice Kavanaugh hinted at as well. Hinted? By the way, if I ever have to play poker with someone, I'm playing with Ju- Justice Kavanaugh because he's the worst poker player ever. He, You know where he's going. I mean, Boy, is he a bad poker player? Or he didn't mean like, trying. He's, He's just holding terrible. cards out. You're right. 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 <laughs> you know, you win. <laughs> Here's my cards in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, he he does it every time. It's unbelievable. He just he's out there. I, I think Justice, uh, sorry, I think Judge Akuta's dissent uh, from the M Bank uh, rehearing and bank petition uh, was a little bit closer to the theory that uh, we were advocating for, in that uh, she mentioned that. Uh, the access regulation took an easement on the property of agricultural growers in California for the benefit of union organizers. Because it is a taking of a discrete property interest, then it should be analyzed under the per se rule. And any limits on that taking of a property interest would go toward the amount of compensation that is just, not toward whether a taking has occurred in the first place. So that brings us right to where we're at now uh, in in front of the Supreme Court. And and we had, I think you may have referenced it, but if you hadn't, you guys had originally brought both a Fifth Amendment claim that you've discussed. That's uh, whether it's the Penn Central test or the uh, Loretto test, whatever it happens to be. Obviously, you're arguing for the the, the per se test. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But there also was a Fourth Amendment claim that uh, had been brought both in the district court and before the Ninth Circuit, but wasn't advanced in the Supreme Court. Um, to the extent you can, can you talk us about uh, why, why you didn't advance that Fourth Amendment claim at the court? And then it seemed to sneak its way back into the argument, notwithstanding it not being directly on the issue, because it it kind of is a background principle um, in, in this. Can 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 you talk about how the Fourth Amendment claim and and why you've changed why that evolved? Okay. Sure. So th- th- those are actually a couple of different um, things, though they both involve the Fourth Amendment. Um, what we alleged in the district court and uh, argued at the Ninth Circuit was that the access regulation. Uh, amounted to an unconstitutional seizure. And there is actually some good precedent for that. There's a Fourth Circuit decision where the government published maps in a way to allow uh, the public to uh, access um, a a person's private property. And the Fourth Circuit actually found that there was an unconstitutional seizure that was properly alleged there. So there is some circuit court precedent for that. But, you know, that that argument, uh, I I think it ended up being so related in many respects to the Fifth Amendment case, uh, to the Fifth Amendment arguments, that, you know, it's it's a long shot for the Supreme Court to grant uh, cert on any given case. And in our view, the more the more focused you can be with respect to your argument. The, the higher the chances are that the Supreme Court would grant cert. So that's why we focus on the core issue. This is a core property rights case. Uh, and, you know, that's why we raised only the Fifth Amendment arguments. Uh, as you mentioned, the Fourth Amendment did find its way back. Uh, in it did. <laughs> at the Supreme Court level. And that's it because, uh, in my view, there were a lot of different uh, horribles, a parade of horribles raised by not just the other side, but commentators uh, in places like the New York Times and uh, Washington Post and LA Times. And, and, so, found, and some of the justices, in fact. Yeah, and I, I, I found some of those um, to be um, sort of a stretch, in my opinion. But we did, we did want to make it perfectly clear that our rule would not call into question uh, the multitude of inspection regimes that the government had. Uh, and, you know, one reason for that is because at the founding, there was a Fourth Amendment. The government, uh, implicit in the Fourth Amendment, is that the government had the right to conduct searches on private property, and private property did not have, as a background principle, the right to exclude government uh, inspectors uh, condu- who wanted to conduct reasonable searches on that property. So we just made that argument to to say that you know our rule would not call into question. Uh, the government inspection regimes. These are not government inspectors. They're union organizers who come onto private land for the purposes of trying to get workers to join the union. Um, so I think it's far afield from the inspection cases. And, but you, and you still got some 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 argument. There was some talk of that anyway. Uh, in this case, and, and Pat and I have talked about this a little bit uh, in prior podcasts and the and and the government and amicus briefs. But in this case, the United States filed an amicus brief in support of you and your position. And then after the election changed, uh, they changed their position. Do you think that's going to have any impact on the outcome of this case that's before the Supreme Court? And, and did the government and did the government ask to argue before the uh, Supreme Court in this case? Or, or did they either under the prior administration or under the current administration, did they ask to participate in oral argument? 
Um, no, the government did not ask to participate at any point. Uh, the government generally does like to ask to argue, uh, to split the argument time in cases in which it files amicus briefs before the Supreme Court. But I think that it would have had a tough time doing so here because um, it switched positions in this case as it did with so many other cases uh, after the change in administration. And, you know, I don't have a particular view about that, but if you recall from the uh, beginning of the Trump administration, I think Justice Sotomayor actually uh, called out. That might be a topic in Dan's column in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin next week. Okay. It yeah. will be. I'll, I'll send you a copy when I, I just wrote it, and it's it's the title is "We Stand Corrected," and it talks about this change in administrations, change of positions, and Sotomayor was very harsh on on yep. uh, Francisco about exactly. wait a second, all these administrations, all of a sudden it changes. What what changed? Exactly. An so election I, I, happened. It, 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 <laughs> right? well, I would be interested to see what happens um, as a result of all these changes, whether that comes up at argument um, in the future. Um, I don't think, going back to your first question, I don't think it will have much of an impact on the court's decision. Um, I think, you know, the fact is um, the, the Supreme Court has both the uh, original brief that was filed before it, and also the letter that was filed after the Biden administration came into power. And I think it can evalu evaluate the merits of the competing briefs, uh, I guess a brief against the letter that it later filed. And, you know, I think I think the original uh, brief that it filed uh, was much stronger and much, it was a much um, uh, better view uh, under the takings clause. So, um the before we get it, we're going to get into the argument in the in, in a minute. It seemed that the, the that there were as many views of this case as there were justices, um, and perhaps more. Uh, they they all had their own peculiar, each had their own peculiar views. Um, and by peculiar, I don't mean odd or strange. I just mean they each had they were each discreet, right? Uh, going in many different directions. Um, I want to start off with the talk about the Babcock case. Sure. Uh, could you set the Babcock case? Before we go to our next break, kind of what that case, you know, the time frame you mentioned the NLRA, tell us what the NLRA is and really how did Babcock fit in to, because that was something about Justice Kavanaugh was obviously interested in, but I want to say Justice Sotomayor was also interested in, I, I may have it I wrong, think so. I think one great. of the other justices was very interested in Babcock as well, and is like, you win, what, what are we doing here? So, so expand more on Babcock and where it plays in the argument. Sure. So Babcock was a 1956 decision by the Supreme Court of the United States. So uh, a it, much different environment for unions, ladies and gentlemen, than, than we are today in a much different technology. Just kind of set the idea in mind of where that case fits. Sorry, go ahead. Right. Uh, and what Babcock said, it was interpreting uh, Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, which said that it was important for uh, employees to learn their rights to uh, union organization. And what the case did in interpreting that that statutory provision is to say that, well, the property rights of the property owner must be balanced uh, against the ability of uh, union organizers to come on to private property so that employees could uh, learn their uh, learn their uh, labor rights and their right to organize um, under the union. Um, so. It, you know, as you mentioned, that case was decided in the 1950s. Around that era, there were still uh, employees who left, who who lived in 
uh, logging camps and, you know, pretty much company towns. Um, and the Supreme Court said that in those rare circumstances, union organizers uh, must be allowed onto private property under Section 7 of the NLRA. Uh, and, you know, Justice, Sot- Justice Sotomayor and Kavanaugh said that why can't we just apply the Babcock rule here, uh, you know, and, you know, hinted that we would win because the employees are accessible uh, uh, through other means. And I think the reason for that is, you know, Babcock was an interpretation of statute. But unfortunately, California interpreted its statute in a different way, in a way that plainly allows for union organizers to come onto private property for three hours a day, 120 days per year. So, you know, that ship from a statutory interpretation angle has already sailed. And we're now moving on to the constitutional angle of whether uh, a regulation that allows for invasion of private property in that way violates the takings clause. And with that, we'll take our second break and come back with uh, the meat of the argument. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three. Uh, with Wen Fa of the Pacific Legal Foundation talking about uh, Cedar Point versus Hasid. Uh, and as I mentioned, and we mentioned before in our last segment that there really were as many uh, views as there were justices. Justice Alito asked uh, counsel for, uh, the, the, for California, um, he asked, you know, if they had 360 days as opposed to 120. And that not every day and not every minute of every day, maybe the daylight hours. And counsel <laughs> says, you know, he thought that that would be Penn Central balancing, uh, and he and, and Justice Alito said, "Do you think everything is a Penn Central question? What what limiting principle did they come up with? A limiting principle is is it in their briefs that wasn't articulated at the argument? What's the limiting principle there? They have never come up with a limiting principle. Um, they don't really propose a rule in their in their response in their um, opening brief before the Supreme Court. You know, they claim that the rule that we propose is unworkable, but they don't come up with a rule of their own. Um, and I think, you know, for the reasons stated in our reply, our our um, position is eminently workable. Um, at argument, I, I was I was actually quite surprised at their at their position at argument in that I think they tried to um, evade all of the line drawing issues uh, by putting everything into Penn Central. Um, as Justice Kagan actually mentioned, that's inconsistent, at least, with the court's decision in Loretto. There has, there has to be some physical takings cases before the Supreme Court. And then as Justice Barrett mentioned... There you go. Justice Barrett was all over the line drawing. Yeah. She was. Justice Barrett mentioned, well, look, you know, even an easement that's around the clock would probably not allow the plaintiffs to win under a Penn Central test. Uh, you know, we've we've um, we've uh, mentioned in our reply brief that the Ninth Circuit and the Federal Circuit recently have not found a single Penn Central case in which the diminution of the property value was 
less than 50% and the property owner won. And if you, th you think about an easement across the property, you know, if I allow for someone to cut across my property, my home value is not going to decrease by over 50%. That's just not going to happen. So even under, so, you know, if the respondents were to prevail, I think you can just, you know, I think the government would be able to just allow for easement on demand uh, in that scenario, because easements would simply not uh, allow the property owner, the taking of easements would not allow the property owners to prevail under Penn Central. And that's sort of the extreme rule that they're advocating for in this case. And that uh, that came through with some of the justices and, you know, some of the justices had uh, concerns about governments. And we talked about this a little bit in the first segment about being able to do inspections of bakeries and nuclear power plants and the like, and uh, spaceships and electric cars that Breyer asked about. And then Justice Gorsuch threw a real softball to your colleague. Mm -hmm. Did you explain a position and question he was asking? Just so you understand, ladies and gentlemen, when we say real softball by Justice Gorsuch, usually the, the justices want to make speeches, particularly Justice Sotomayor. They really want to control the questioning almost like it's a cross-examination and just kind of like me. And Justice Gorsuch just said, these things have been said. Give us your argument. It was essentially what he did. Why don't you tell us how that went? Yeah. So uh, that's a question just, Justice Gorsuch posed. And, you know, we basically reiterated the arguments that were made uh, somewhat in our opening brief and also and more uh, more so in our reply brief, which is, you know, we have the background principles. Um, if you if a property owner didn't have the right to exclude uh, at common law, then, you know, the a regulation that infringes on that doesn't really infringe on the on the right to exclude. So one example is inspections, for example. You know, those would be reasonable searches under the Fourth Amendment, and the government had the power to conduct reasonable searches uh, at common law. So that wouldn't really infringe a property owner's right to exclude in the same way that the access regulation does. Uh, we also have, you know, the argument of uh, constitutional conditions, which was advanced most heavily by the Chamber of Commerce, actually by former judge and uh, Supreme Court shortlister, Michael McConnell. Um, and, you know, basically what he said is that in certain industries, you know, you can imagine a nuclear plant, for example, where- A coal mine, a, things like that. Right, in, as a condition of uh, being able to participate uh, in that industry, you can give up uh, your right to exclude. The government can force you to give up your right to exclude to a limited extent that is both germane and proportional um, to the benefit that the government is granting. Pharmaceuticals, another example that was brought up in oral arguments. So when you participated in a teleform uh, with the Federalist Society that we'll link to in the uh, show notes page uh, on the day of the argument or the afternoon of the argument, it seemed, and there was a question you got there, and it certainly was something that came to my mind as I was listening to this, because unlike the where the government wants to inspect for the public good for you know for the government's agents to come onto the property, this is a situation where a private party, the union, gets to come on. Now, um, this almost seems like Kilo versus New London, where are we going to really expand the definition of public interest, um, and then are we going to argue about what you know? unions today, what tomorrow? I mean, I, I don't know what, what, what set of people get to come on next. So could you, 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 could you expand on that? And did that get briefed at all um, on the nature of who's coming, that it's a third party and not the government itself? 
Right. So um, the Fifth Amendment allows government to uh, take property only when uh, it is for a public use. Um, that concept, I think, has been uh, stretched pretty broadly in cases like Kilo, in which, you know, they took, um, you know, someone's, uh, they see someone's house through eminent domain and gave it ostensibly to Pfizer. Of course, you know, Pfizer never built there and that's just an empty lot these days. Uh, and Miss, yeah, Miss Kilo's pink house is gone. You can see the documentary. No yeah. pink house for Miss Kilo and her dream house and no manufacturing facility from Pfizer. So right what now. Right. So, you know, I, I definitely think uh, that would be an issue that I hope the Supreme Court takes up in the next few years in, in that, you know, sort of putting the public use doctrine, putting some teeth behind the public use doctrine to make sure that when the government takes property, it has to be for a public use. Um, we actually did not brief the issue in this case because of the Kilo decision, uh, you know, but I, I think there is a strong argument that was advanced by uh, many of our amici that, look, this is something, this is a benefit conferred to third-party union organizers for their own private interests. They get to have, they get to try to convince people to join the union. Um, they would get the benefit of the union dues. The government would not get the benefit of uh, union dues. Um, so it's not for public use. Um, you know, I, I think that's a really strong argument. Uh, and, you know, it will be interesting to see um, what the court says about this, you know, if not not in this case, in a future case. Very well. And, and uh, when that, that's a, a lot of good information about this case, and we wish you well on that. I, I know, uh, as Pat said, the Pacific Legal Foundation and your litigations involved in a broad act, uh, practice areas and focuses on equality before the law and free speech. And recently, uh, you've written on a minority contracting issue in Chicago uh, that you're working on. And can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that issue? Most of our listeners are uh, Chicago attorneys. And so it's the topic that's likely of interest to our listeners as well. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, we, as you mentioned, we believe uh, deeply in the principle of equality before the law. That means individuals are treated as individuals on the basis of their individual achievements, abilities, and aspirations, and not as members uh, of, a, uh, of a group. So what a lot of cities have done, including Chicago, is that they have, you know, uh, minority business set-asides that, you know, certain percentage, say 25% of construction dollars must go to businesses that are designated as minority-owned businesses. And we think that's wrong. That's wrong not just because, you know, we are opposed to uh, racial quotas of any kind, but that's also wrong because, you know, it hurts uh, the ability of individual contractors and subcontractors to compete. And it also hurts, uh, you know, minority contractors because it doesn't really address the actual problems. It really puts a superficial band-aids on the problems that many contractors are facing. So we believe in uh, fair and open competition. We believe in individual merit. We think these uh, minority business set-asides are wrong, and we think that Chicago uh, should not uh, adopt them, should not renew them. And if Chicago does renew them, we think there's a strong case that they violate uh, a contractor or subcontractor's uh, rights under the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And these these include women uh, business enterprises as well, right? WB and minority uh, MBs as well, right? Correct, correct. 
Well, when we really appreciate your time here today. If there's any, is there anything else you want to add before uh, before we close? Yeah, I, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you know, I'm really proud to be working along with my colleague Joshua Thompson and others on the Cedar Point case. Uh, you know, I think PLF is very dedicated to fighting for individual liberty in courts across the United States uh, and core uh, issues like dealing with equality before the law, free speech, economic liberty, property rights, and separation of powers. And we're very grateful uh, to everyone who follows our work. Well, thank you. Th thank you very much, uh, Mr. Fall. We really appreciate uh, um, you joining us today. Um, for Dan, this is Pat. Uh, we join us again on Sunday for our regular scheduled episode. It'll be released Sunday afternoon, where we'll discuss a case from the Illinois Supreme Court on certification of a question from the Seventh Circuit and uh, a at least one case from the Illinois Appellate Court. And there's also been some decisions. We're 11 and 2 people. We're kicking ass. <laughs> we are. Thank you, everybody. Talk to you Sunday. I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.